Hello, iGaming Intelligentsia. Before we start today's podcast, here is a message from our sponsors. The iGaming Next podcast is made possible with the support from our sponsors at Pragmatic Solutions, leaders in intelligent platform technology. I've been working with Ashley, Lewis and the guys over at Pragmatic Solutions over the last year. And as the early supporter of this podcast, I cannot recommend them enough. The Pragmatic Solutions Player Account Management Platform is an incredibly powerful technology stack for today's gaming business. Their modern modular platform provides all the core services to power your business and their SaaS licensing model allows you to reduce cost and accelerate your strategic goals. Enterprise technology with decades of operational know-how at scale built in. Upgrade your business to the Pragmatic Solutions PAM platform. Visit www.pragmatic.solutions to arrange a platform demo. This podcast is brought to you by Kalamba Games, where they build the world's most engaging slots. To find out more about their hit titles, promotional tools, and Bullseye Remote Gaming Server, visit kalambagames.com. I have the privilege of being friends with several of the guys over at Kalamba, and they are fantastic. And I'm not saying that to be invited to one of their legendary office pool parties. Um, or maybe I am. In any case, check out kalambagames.com. This podcast is brought to you by sportsbet.io, the leading Bitcoin sportsbook that has redefined the online betting space by combining cutting-edge technology with cryptocurrency expertise and a passion for offering its players with the ultimate fun, fast and fair gaming experience. Go and check it out on sportsbet.io. Future trends, deep insights, industry leaders. This is the iGaming Next podcast with your host, Carolina Perk. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of my iGaming Next podcast. My name is Karina Pertz. I'm a CEO of Shirtplay. And today um, I have a pleasure to uh, feature uh, another guest. Um, hi, Richard. Nice to have you here today. Thanks for agreeing to, to be on the podcast. Very nice to be here. Looking forward uh, to it. Yeah, me too. Richard is a, um, a very well-known industry figure, but I'd like to give you a little bit of introduction. Um, Richard Carter is a group chief executive officer of Bragg Gaming Group, an innovative B2B online gaming solution provider in the company behind Oryx Gaming. Prior to recent appointment, Richard has served as Bragg's non-executive chair, advising and providing support to Bragg's team on developing a global strategy focused on partnerships, continued growth uh, of the organic business and consideration of all um, M&A opportunities. Richard is also a, a ex-CEO of interactive sports betting solutions and services provider called SBTech, held the role for five years until the company merger with digital sports entertainment and gaming company DraftKings through a three-way deal with Diamond Eagle Acquisition Corporation in April 2020. That's, uh, I had to read it out because <laughs> I mean, it's a lot, uh, it's pretty a lot. remarkable. It is a lot. A uh, remarkable career journey. Um, so first of all, let me uh, congratulate you on the appointment. Uh, uh, Thank you. you know, it's very exciting news. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? I read in the press release um, you will be an instrumental person in the aggressive growth strategy. Uh, obviously, you have great experience in M&As. But tell us a little bit about your plans um, for the company and what, what made you choose this as your next step in a very impressive career journey so far. 
Um, okay, well, I think uh, first and foremost, um, what made me choose Bragg? I think it's the people in the culture. Um, they have a very talented team of engineers and uh, product experts, which are based in Slovenia. Um, and they build a very modern, sort of highly modular proprietary tech stack that's um, built on sort of legacy free code. So when I was looking around and, and thinking about sort of what to do next, I think having a, a, a very scalable tech stack with the ability to integrate and release content rapidly, I think that's sort of key in terms of looking at the industry going forward. So for me, it sort of ticked all the right boxes. Um, it's an established leader in Europe. Um, they have a solid track record. And I, I, I was looking around and I really believe that um, their product offering can add a lot of value for operators in North America. Um, so it was a combination of people, technology, proven track record, and then just looking at, you know, what analyzing what's the real opportunity in North America over the next three to five years. And I really think that, um, you know, Bragg stroke Oryx really have those foundations in place uh, to really make a big difference. It is a really great team. I had the pleasure to get to know some of the team and I was really impressed with all the skits and the commitment to the business. Um, you mentioned the opportunity to North America. So mm -hmm. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper to the sort of strategy to diversify revenues and, and grow in the US. Um, I, I've seen that you've recently made an acquisition of a, a slot studio called Spin. Um, yep. Tell us a little bit about the rationale and how does it fit into your overall strategy? Sure. Um, I mean, Spin's a great business. Um, it's a aggregation, content, and distribution business. Um, and it's a real game changer for Bragg. It effectively accelerates our entry into the US market by probably up to two years um, and, and will create a sort of tier one vertically integrated B2B supplier. I think for people that don't necessarily really understand the US market, um, there are a couple of sort of barriers to entry. Um, first is obviously you need to go through the regulatory process, which now is is quite straightforward if, if you're if you're a sort of leading established company. But then I think the bigger issue is is not just getting is not just getting the license. It's actually having the relationships and having the pipes that go into all of these operators. And you know if you if you talk to some of the leading operators in the U.S. You know, just to try and get on 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 their uh, list of integrations can anywhere be twelve to sixteen months, and mm. and so just by analysing and looking at that, we looked around and thought, look, you know, we haven't got twelve, sixteen months, um, and we looked around, and you know, Spin has been in in the market since the beginning. Ken um, Young, who runs the business, is you know highly experienced. And so, you know, we started speaking and, you know, both companies have a similar culture. They have a similar sort of thought process in terms of where they think the market's heading. Um, so it just ticked all the right boxes for us. And I think what's really also important is, you know, the, the acquisition brings a wealth of U.S. market know-how, um, which I think is invaluable, you know, from a product perspective, a technical perspective, and really importantly, um, a regulatory and compliance perspective, and I, and I know this from obviously my time at SPTEC, you know, having that local knowledge, that local compliance or regulatory knowledge, you know, is, is huge. Um, and then I think 
there's also a big win for Oryx because we obviously have a, a lot of good um, European exclusive content. So, you know, we can effectively bring that to the US market um, quicker. Um, and it allows us to roll out our player engagement tools like jackpots, leaderboards and tournaments, which I think is going to become an increasingly uh, bigger opportunity in, in the US market. So, so it ticked all the boxes for us. And it also brings us some additional resource. Um, Spin has a uh, well-established um, um, development center in Chennai, India. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very exciting for us. And, you know, we're really looking forward to working with Ken and his team. And, and I think, you know, it's a real game changer. Um, you mentioned, you know, understanding of, of the U.S. market is key if you're planning your entry. I mean, it, it's sort of um, intuitive, but you are a recognized authority when it comes to the markets. From your experience from SBTEC launching the sports book in there, mm -hmm. now, you know, before you took over as CEO, you advised the board for a while, so you got to know the casino and aggregation side of the business much better. Um, I would like to use this opportunity to get your thoughts on why, why exactly is it that North America, both Canada and the US are still seen as such an amazing opportunity and also at which point is it too late to get involved in the race um so that's a that's a lot of questions i think it in, just in terms of the the opportunity clearly um we've seen over the last 12 months new jersey's you know now on a run rate of you know 100 110 million dollars a month of ggr michigan's recently launched it's up there to, with a similar sort of run rate new jersey so you've got three markets already that probably are on a combined you know run rate of roughly four billion dollars so that's quite a significant market we know from looking around the world um, and looking at most european markets the casino market tends to be you know probably a bit bigger than the sports betting market so you, you know you, you can see the success in the us with sports betting i think you know we're looking at roughly 20 states probably uh, by the end of this year and we sort of know from a European perspective and a global perspective that casino will tend to follow so so I think there's clearly a, a good runway to um, you know in the next three years you could clearly see that the iGaming market just just in the United States you know should be on for a run rate of about 10 billion dollar and that's that's 10 billion dollars and that's obviously very very incremental so i think that's why a lot of people now are, are looking at the opportunity especially you know i speaking to a lot of european based content suppliers over the last four or five months and obviously when if we go back a year we only really had new jersey and then we've gone through this pandemic and then you've seen this huge increase in the new jersey market so all of a sudden i think a lot of operators we're mindful of the US, but they just, there's like um, lower hanging fruit in Europe. They didn't necessarily, you know, want to go through the whole licensing process. Um, but I think now with three markets live, with the huge growth, incremental growth in the size of the market over the last 12 months, I think a, a lot of um, specifically, you know, non-US based content casino suppliers you know, strategically now, I think are, are looking at the U.S. market and and seeing this as quite a significant incremental growth opportunity for them. Now, I think there's a question on does a lot of the European content resonate with Americans? So that's still a, a question mark. I think my view is that really, really high quality good games more or less resonate anywhere. Absolutely. Um, so, so I think I think they will. 
But I think, you know, just to go through the process in America in terms of getting your technology through the lab, each game through the lab, the testing, it's not like Europe, mm. you know, which, which is literally like the Wild West. You know, you have a game, launch it, gone. You know, in the US, it's, it's quite end-to-end -end testing with each operator, you know, just to get a game launched you know, three or four days with each operator. So it's so it's a slightly different process, a bit more elongated. But once you get that knowledge and expertise, then I think um, the opportunity is, is obviously very, very large. I think the, the bigger issue is, do companies have the technology, the operational, uh, the skill sets to necessarily want to go into the US? And I think over the next few years, you'll probably start to see you know, some, and this is my opinion, some really interesting aggregation opportunities for like mm -hmm. a company like Bragorix, because we have all of the infrastructure and the foundations in place in the US, we can go to a lot of, you know, European-based uh, content providers and they can come and partner with us and get almost immediate access, know-how, knowledge, compliance, compliance expertise. Um, and and get access to the end customers so so i think you know we're in a really um unique position to be able to execute on that um and then canada i think you know we'll probably get a, a similar um opportunity i mean i think canada's a little bit different only because i think if you look around most of the european content providers and b2c operators have businesses in canada so i'm not too sure how necessarily how incremental that is for them um, I think some of the local players there and some of the land-based players who will want to go online, I think there's a, a nice opportunity there. Um, so I think that's why everybody's sort of looking at the US. Um, Europe, as you know, is getting a bit tougher. There's a lot of regulatory changes. And um, I think um, the US has seen a sort of virgin territory and, uh, and um, you know, a lot of incremental opportunity. But you have to, I think, also recognize that um it's quite a complex market to be able to operate in so it's it's not such low-hanging fruit yeah um i mean on top of existing complexity enters florida uh, and the uh, sort of conversations with samilo in there where there's a lot of sort of doubts to how this is all exactly going to work but a lot of people talk about you know uh, all sports betting going through seminal through uh, hard rock mm -hmm. uh, gaming so it's a really um, interesting how people look at the US and see it on state by state basis, not necessarily as one market, but some people just forego New Jersey completely because it's a bit late to gain market share and go straight for Massachusetts and so on. So um, the only problem with that is the only problem with that is you then you know just from a from a an integration perspective and a relevance perspective, you know I think a lot of the big operators want you supplying them in all their markets. Mm. You know, not they're not just going to take you just for one market. So, I mean, that's fine yeah. on, on a piece of paper, but in reality, I don't know necessarily if that works. But it, it makes sense to maybe, you know, I can see strategically why people would say, look, New Jersey is very competitive. Uh, Michigan's a new market. Let's try and get into Michigan. But that theory only works on paper because then you've got to get integrated with the operators. So how are you going to do that, yeah. you know? Yeah. all yeah. the contracts things like that but uh, but yeah it's uh, it's going to be i think an interesting uh, 12 to 18 months in terms of seeing how things evolve
I meant obviously Michigan, not Massachusetts, yeah. <laughs> but I just realized what they mm -hmm. said it. Um, so you're, you know, you talked about uh, increasingly um, challenging situation in the European markets. You know, we've got uh, again European markets with their own intricacies and different regulations. Sweden, uh, UK, and so on. But you're as Oryx is a leading player in Germany. You're close to um, that market, and you know it's been a really hot subject, debated pretty much every week on our clubhouse sessions on you know the impact that the regulation is going to have on the industry so i think where you said it would be really interesting to get uh sort of a summary of where where we currently stand with this regulation as you understand it and the impact you're seeing or you're foreseeing uh, on the business okay well i mean this is a, i think this is a question for an entire podcast uh, although i'm not sure how many listeners you'd have by the end of it but um um i'll give it a go i mean it's 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 very complex what's going on in Germany. It's 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 complex and it's not so complex. I mean, I think the the reality of the situation is that the the you've got the new rules. We've implemented the new rules. I think if you look at um, what most of the quoted companies have said, I think Leo Vegas. Um, um, you've had GVC. Um, they've seen declines in their if you take out table games and uh, and some of the other um, um, live, I think you're looking at probably fifty percent declines in their slot slots, um, which is sort of you know what we we were sort of thinking you know fifty to sixty five percent just based on doing running mathematical models. So that's what you've seen so far. Now the only problem is that the market. Is 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 currently it's very difficult to diagnose what the real impact is because you've still got a lot of operators operating, you know, in the in the grey market, um, and so I think until we get to July, I think it's very difficult to to um, really understand what what's re what's really going to happen in, in the German market. I think there are a couple of really important steps. I think number one. It, it's going to largely, in terms of the, the the regulated market, the performance is largely going to be driven by by channeling, and how successful the German regulator is in channeling, um, you know, the market onshore, um, and so and the, and the problem with the channeling area is going to be partly driven by court cases mm -hmm. and. And one of the one of the challenges I think that's going to happen is that there's likely to be several court cases, partly around um, the differentials in tax rates between land-based um, casino slot machines and online, mm. and and the the significant differentials and state aid arguments. So I think there <laughs> there is there is a chance whereby you know, we could continue to get the typical German uncertainty for a period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a definite sort of, I'd give that probably at this moment in time, there's probably a 60 to 70% chance. So there's a high chance of actually a bit of status quo going on. So you're still going to mm -hmm. get this market, which is the grey market, the sort of this regulated transition with operators, with the major tier one operators abiding by the rules, but obviously suffering because players can still play the games w with the old rules, um, and while they while they're covered by you know um, ongoing court cases, then 
we may still get this uncertainty for a period of time. Mm. And then, you know, I, I don't, I, it's difficult to predict what, what the outcome of those court cases will be. Um, I think there's every chance that the, uh, the German courts just throw it out. Um, and then maybe there'll be even, you know, more legal challenges. So I think while that's going on, that may give a lot of EU-based operators, and it's important to stress EU-based operators, um, the ability to, to continue operating from Malta or wherever in Europe and targeting the, the German market. So which would then mean that you have this current sort of period of uncertainty for the, for the, um, for the licensed operators. So, you know, I, I think, <laughs> I think it, it's, it's difficult to call, to be honest with you. I think, you know, if it was, if it was going to be a fully licensed uh, and the German regulator was going to be really focused on onshore channeling, then I genuinely believe that within 18 to 24 months, you probably get about three quarters of the market back, even yeah. based on the current... Um, five second, one euro spins. And then my assumption would be that with, with effective lobbying, I think there, there is probably a good opportunity to get the tax, the 5% uh, handle tax reversed to a, to a um, more acceptable sort of gross profit tax. Uh, I so, agree. And there's a lot of people that share the opinion that the market will eventually get back and grow. I mean, there's a lot of trust issues that are going to be you now handled um, by the fact that it's now legal and legalized and you, you'll be able to see advertising. But for me, the dangerous ground of this regulation is playing around with RTPs of the games, which sometimes feel like they are necessary to accommodate for this turnover tax. Um, because, you know, the moment you start to lower and, uh, and uh, heighten the RTP as you wish, that's where you start losing players' trust. And that, that's the biggest danger for me. That's true. But I think you've got to look at it in terms of you, you probably will get a, a group of players um, which probably will never come back. Mm. So therefore, you do lose, let's say, whatever the percentage is, 30% of the market, 35%. But then you have the opportunity going forward that you're creating new players each year. So you know, thin layers of that 35% start to get replaced and then people start to get used to the, you know, the, the lower RTPs. You know, if you look at American games and a lot of the American style games, the land-based games, there are much lower RTPs. Mm. So it's, it's partly an educational thing. If you look at land-based, they're also a little bit different. So I think there's also a, a part educational process in this. Um, mm. But you're right that, you know, people that are used to playing the uh, higher RTP games, you know, will have a, a, a materially different experience. And therefore, the likelihood is that, um, given the way technology is today, they will look to seek out and play on on websites that you know will probably continue to to access the the market, and that that's the problem here. That's the inconsistencies of of the regulator and what they're trying to do. Because you know, primarily the idea is to channel the business onshore, so you can protect the the players obviously generate tax as well. But the, the key is obviously protecting players. And that, that's one of the major issues of, yeah. of just this regulatory regime that they've come up with. Um, I think, you know, we could all live with, with uh, what they have developed. But when you then suddenly, you know, I don't. I don't think there's anywhere in the world that has a, a revenue tax. No, you know. So well, there are land-based casinos, for oh, example, land -based. in a couple okay, of countries. Yeah, yeah but yeah, that's it. But, 
you know, but the, the difference is that, you know, online's, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, you can play anywhere in the world. So, so that's a big yeah. issue. So, so I think, I think there's a, a good chance of probably a period of uh, a bit more confusion. Mm. Um, and then I think, you know, as we work through the court cases, I think hopefully, fingers crossed, I think by the end of the year, we'll have a little bit more clarity on, on the current situation. And then hopefully the, the, um, the licensed operators will then hopefully have the opportunity that when they spend money on marketing and things like that, they, they can get a return on investment and we can start to, to you know, grow a material regulated mm. German market. So, you know, we talked about um, getting away from those regulated markets slightly and, and foreseeing opportunities in high growth uh, markets. What about Africa? I don't want to focus the whole podcast on markets, but I, I you know, I recall last year you you said um, that Africa will be the next battleground for sportsbook operators. Mm -hmm. Do you stand by it and do you still see it as this great opportunity? Because it doesn't seem to be as prominent or at least as visibly in demand as, as the US. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the US takes all of the headlines um <laughs> but the market in africa is far bigger um mm. so and i think you know as a continent um the demographics are far more encouraging um you know people are living longer mobile penetrations increasing the um the love of sports is is incredible um you know just the populations you know in, in these countries are vast um, so, you know, you know, Kenya, a billion dollar market, you know, the, a lot of the, once you start adding these markets up, it, it starts to become very, very big numbers. You've obviously got some operational issues, you know, currently just because of the, of the sort of, um, uh, telecoms issues with, with 3G and that type of stuff and, and the, and the phones. Um, so the actual experience is not particularly rich at the moment. Uh, but it's improving. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, before I left Espitec, we did a sort of, you know, a huge analysis on Africa, uh, looking at all the demographics, looking at the growth opportunities. Uh, um, and, you know, a lot of these markets are bigger than a lot of European markets. Mm. Um, so they're incredibly attractive. The propensity to gamble is, is, is high. Um, the way people gamble there if you're a sports betting supplier or operator is phenomenal because, you know, they're doing sort of accumulators of sort of, you know, anywhere from eight to 15 teams. So they're, they're, they're betting, you know, let's say on average a dollar to win, you know, thousands of dollars. So it's more like a sort of lottery style sort of betting product. Now in plays increasing as well as, the, as, as some of the operators roll out um, uh, better quality technology. Um, there's also a growing um, casino market in a lot of countries. Um, you know, speaking to somebody yesterday, Ethiopia is is also an, a very interesting market. I mean, you can go through. There's so many, you know, really interesting markets there. Um, there are a lot of incumbents. Um, a lot of the incumbents are not your traditional high-profile companies that you'll have heard of. So that's pro potentially why you don't see a uh, a lot of you know high level coverage but i'm pretty sure that um you know you, over the next few years you're gonna you're gonna read and hear a lot more about it and i think you know it's increasingly going to be on on more people's radars um but as i said there are definitely some um some operational issues with africa because 
because of you know d- depending on which country it is you tend to have to have an in-country partner yeah so you have to you have to sort of partner locally so that adds a little bit more complications to the to the process um you know the, some of the tax rates are uh, quite aggressive but you know you can handle that with the high margins um so i think it uh, trying to create a sort of global player um you know i think the likes of gvc and some of the big global guys with you know with their own technology um i i know they've been you know ag- aggressively looking at africa and, and looking to do things so i think you know once once you get one of the bigger companies you know establishing themselves and, and really investing there then I, I think you'll uh you'll start to hear a lot more about it but um but it's definitely something that uh at brag oryx you know it's it's on our sort of strategic roadmap i think there's a huge opportunity um it's probably not a, a 2021 story for us but i think we'll definitely start to start laying you know some foundations in that marketplace um you know over the next sort of sort of 18 months and as i said i had a in the last week i've spoken to i think two or three people who have all talked about looking to get licenses in different uh, uh countries in in africa so um so i'd say what watch this space is there's, there's definitely going to be a, a lot more interest in in that marketplace i mean I'm, I'm i'm smiling because this podcast will be hugely popular considering the wealth of expertise you're just giving away in here <laughs> so thank you for that uh, i think many people will be grateful now you know i, I uh, i'm not going to ask you too many questions around the subject so now it can be sensitive but i can't ignore the fact that you are you know you were as sb tech ceo for 5 years uh, mm-hmm. one of the key people um, in the massive deal um, you know that saw the draftkings and um, sb tech merge and go uh public with a 3.3 billion ipo um and it was one of the first deals where people started to talk about spac um mm-hmm. you know for the benefits of some listeners as we have listeners from different backgrounds different seniority levels can you explain what is a spac in, in a simple <laughs> approachable way sure okay so um just for all of your listeners um so spacs have been around for years it's just that in this industry um it's 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 just become quite high profile so a spac is just a, it's a special purpose acquisition company that's what spac stands for um a spac has no commercial operations so effectively you create an, a name of a company like diamond eagle and then you raise money um so you create an ipo you tend to issue shares at say they seem to be $10 so you issue shares at $10 um which have warrants attached to them which tends to be um at sort of $11.50 or slightly higher um and a warrants just a, a right to buy a share at at a, at a future price um and they're also known as blank check companies so you'll you'll hear them referred to as blank check companies um and effectively what they try and do is they sit there they raise uh traditionally from 200 to 500 600 million dollars of of cash it sits on the balance sheet and then they focus on a particular sector or industry and they go and try and find a business that they think is interesting and has a lot of value um and they try and agree to to buy that business and reverse it into the spac um and then the spac issues shares for for the business they're acquiring and then over it takes it's 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 a it normally takes to complete a deal as well you know anywhere from 6 to 9 months and effectively 
creates a way of a private company sort of IPOing and, and raising capital on 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 the US market. Um, so they have been around for many, many years, but obviously with over the last, I mean, it just seems to me, I mean, it seems to me that when we did the SPAC with with DraftKings and Diamond Eagle, it it seemed to have created this chain reaction where mm. now there's just so many SPACs, so many SPACs happened over the last sort of 16 months that, you know, if you turn on Bloomberg or CNBC, the financial news, you know, that constantly now talking about SPACs, there's SPACs that, you know, there's a bubble in the SPAC market. This is getting crazy. There's there's these hundred SPACs. So, so I think SPACs have just, you know, you know, become incredibly popular popular over the last 12 months. Um, I don't think, you know, it just seemed to be the DraftKings, SP Tech SPAC seem to just kick things off. Mm. Um, but that's all it is. It's just a, it's just a blank check company that, you know, looks around to, a, to, to acquire a company and then they reverse it in and then issue shares and, uh, um, they, re they retain a percentage of the company and, uh, and, you know, the company moves forward, normally renames and, uh, and then, you know, you know, you have a publicly listed company. And, 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 and it and it sort of compares to you know a traditional IPO uh, route would be you know the company would go through a slightly more elongated process, mm -hmm. um, and the big argument that a lot of a lot of commentators are making now is that the due diligence um, and some of the corporate governance that that would traditionally happen around a traditional. Uh, NASDAQ, for example, IPO is not necessarily happening with the SPACs. And that's the big sort of issue that people are talking about at the moment is it's just around the due diligence process. But I think like everything in life, you know, if you stick with the high quality uh, people involved in the SPAC who have a very good track record, then, you know, that, that tends to be, you know, I think you can't really go wrong with that. Um, but obviously in the last 12 months, you've got I love a lot of people that have not really had anything to do with SPACs or anything that suddenly think they can they can make a quick turn and and I think that's where some of the recent negative commentary around SPACs is coming mm. from. But I think overall it's a, it's a it's a you know a very uh, clean and quick uh, way for companies to access uh, the public markets and, and raise capital. So I didn't ask you this question just because you were involved in a SPAC type of transaction, but uh, you also come from investment banking background, um, mm -hmm. you know, so you've got um, pretty pretty wide expertise on these subjects. But this takes me to my next question. When we first met, it was probably around five, maybe six years ago in uh, in Barcelona at an AGR yeah, event. And that was, yeah, that was when you when you first joined this BTEC. Uh, I think it was one of your yeah. first couple of months. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to know what what you know interested you to join the industry why that company in particular how did it start? okay so um so I, yeah i worked in so I, I started my career in investment banking um like literally first week uh new uh got given the industrial sector which wasn't particularly exciting <laughs> so i was looking at uh <laughs> i was looking at companies in hull that made belting for mining for these big belts and all this type of stuff it, but it was, it was really interesting so I, I did that and then um a couple of months later um there was these gaming companies like william hill and labrooks and rank back then um 
and um, no one was really interested in doing them. They were very boring, you know, and so they gave me these companies. So I started to look at them and then pretty quickly we in the UK under the Labour government, the Bud Report, and they were looking at all the deregulation and, uh, of, of gaming and then suddenly um, online started to happen. And mm. then within about a year, I was like the most important person um, in the bank because suddenly there was all these sort of, you know, online gaming companies all over the world. And, you know, there were, you know, it was like the hot thing. And so overnight, I was like hot property and I, I was just very lucky. And so right place, the right time. And then we focused on, um, on online gaming companies where most of the banks, the bigger banks, didn't want anything to do with them because there was the gray markets. Um, and so just naturally we, we got involved. And so I got to meet all of the, all of the companies at the time. And then we did a lot of the IPO. So there was a company, you won't remember this company, I'm sure, but uh, there was a company called Empire Online, which mm. was a, basically a super affiliate to Party Gaming. So we did the Empire Online IPO, then Party Gaming IPO. Then there was, I think, Playtech, 32 Red, um, so just so we just ended up just doing all these IPOs and basically covering and, and researching all the companies, um, and um, and doing quite a bit of M and A, um, and so got to know the industry really really well. Spent a hell of a lot of time with a lot of the sort of you know founders of this industry, um, and and then at Deutsche Bank we you know we're seen as probably the the number one sort of rated M&A and, and research team. So we did all the major deals. Um, and then sort of fast forward um, back in sort of 2015, we done with Kenny uh, the GVC BWIN deal and mm -hmm. then got to know Kenny and those guys very well and had dinner with Kenny and his chairman in Milos in New York. And, you know, and then just had a discussion and they were like saying, well, you know, why don't you come and work with us? And so thought about that and then thought yeah that's a good idea so resigned from Deutsche Bank um, accepted a job with GVC and then halfway through my gardening leave um, John Anderson who uh, was the chairman of uh, SP Tech, who was the ex-CEO of 888 phoned me up um, and said like you know what are you doing and I explained to him like I've left Deutsche Bank and I'm going here and he was like don't be mad don't go to GVC <laughs> you're not, you know, you don't, you're not a CFO, you know, you don't want to do all this investor stuff, you know, you're, you're you know, I'm telling you, you're a CEO, you, you need to come and meet Shalom and the team, you know, you'd be a perfect fit for these guys. So I sort of, you know, I said, okay. And then Shalom called me, who's the major shoulder in SP Tech 10 minutes later and, and basically wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't let me say no and wouldn't let me until I agreed to get on a flight to Bulgaria um, he wouldn't let me go. So I agreed, went to Bulgaria, met the guys and pretty quickly realized that, my God, you know, this is this company's got incredible product. Mm. Um, one of the best I've seen. I knew the sports betting industry, you know, there was the sort of, S, um, what was it called back then? Open bet, you know, was seen as a premier sort of um, supplier, but, you know, the, their business model wasn't the best. Mm. Um, you had Camby and a few others, and I, I just thought, wow, you know, given the technology, given the platform, given you know their risk management capabilities, um, 
I just thought, you know, there was this was, you know, a great opportunity. So I met the team, met what, you know, what Shalom had, had put together, um, came back and then um, had to inform Kenny, which was horrible. Um, so I told him and then, um, yeah, I guess the rest is history. So uh, and I had, uh, you know, uh, a lot of five fantastic years with SB Tech and, and the guys. And, you know, when we joined, we, you know, it was a relatively small company with, I don't know, 20 odd customers. Um, and, you know, they were more like tier three customers. And at the end, you know, we, uh, we, we all know the up, end. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the end, but we were winning companies like, you know, contracts like Oregon Lottery. Yeah. Uh, Vicavs, you know, it just sort of, you know, that it was a, it was a phenomenal five years and, you know, owning half really... of ice uh, space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like always, oh, uh, yeah. in the middle. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, just working with really great people and, and I think at the end of the day, if you can, if you can, um, if you have a great product, you know, really good technology um, and very good people and you have like a lot of energy and drive, then, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, good a, it's a very good combination yeah, for success. I'm going to ask, ask a very last sort of business related question, but, uh, and you can say no, if you don't want to answer, but I'm just interested, you know, you talked about the dinner that happened, the flight they need to take, you know, is there any particular event, phone call or dinner that you can mention when the talk between us, Bitek and Raskins just kicked off for the first time? I mean, there's so many, I mean, the, the, the process was quite elongated. So, you know, um, when, when you initially we so one of the big things we did was we strategically probably probably before anybody else really focused on the US. Mm -hmm. So um, um, I remember having a conversation with Alan Lang, who was working with the AGA, and you know me and Alan had been speaking for quite a while about you know the opportunity in the US, and Alan was sort of at the coal face for party gaming, so. I stayed in contact with him and, you know, he helped SB Tech quite a lot over the years. And, and then I had, a, I remember having a meeting in Bulgaria with the, with the guys, with the team talking about the U S and I think everybody was a bit reluctant, but, you know, Shalom was brilliant and, you know, spoke to him and he said, look, you know, you know, this is it, you know, we've got to go all in. Um, so we made that sort of decision to go all in and that obviously, you know, we required a lot of capital because we knew it was going to be, you know, a big project. So then we decided that we were going to look to raise some capital. So we went through the whole private equity and looking at, you know, different routes. And so that process was six months, nine months. And then we narrowed it down. And then effectively, I remember um, meeting Jason and in ICE. Uh, no, not ICE, in G2E in, I guess, when would it have been? 2018. So mm -hmm. that was the sort of first meeting um, of, of sort of starting the process. Okay. It's just an interesting fact of sort of how did these things even come about, you know? Um, now, listen, wanted to ask you a little bit about non-business related things because it's a it's a running zone. I ask all the leaders that I bring to my um, podcast about their routines and celery juice and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because actually you and me do talk about celery juice in our That's private conversations. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, how do you how do you sort of go around your work life balance and health? Because you've had these high flying 
um, you know, high, high pressure, stressful jobs from the very beginning of your career with very yeah. little breaks in between. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there anything, any changes that they implemented post SBTEC tenure after this intense five years and, and you tried to keep it up now? And how do you go about it? <laughs> I slept a lot. Uh, yeah. Afterwards, but um, no, I think I think obviously it's very very important to have a uh, a uh, a work life balance um, because if you don't, it, it starts to I think have a just a negative impact on 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 you and and mm. also on on the relationships you have both at home and at work. So I think it's it's super important. Um, you know, I was a bit of a workaholic, and you know, I'm, I'm at the end, I was you know. Because of we had the US business as well, it was it was quite a struggle because you know be working during the day and then you know we had a Las Vegas office and you know so you know working till midnight one o'clock in the morning is very difficult to unwind. Mm. So I wouldn't advise anyone to do that. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, what I found is <clears throat> I now um, really prioritize my health, um, and so. I, I invest a lot of, and it requires a lot of investment. Um, and, you know, I've invested a lot of time. I've read a lot. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and I think, you know, it's really important. So for me, I, I run quite a lot. Um, so I'll run, um, let's say, five to seven kilometers. I try and do it every day. Mm. Um, I, all the years I've been sat at a desk, I don't sit upright. So, Recently, I've introduced myself to yoga, mm. which is a real challenge for me. Like, I guess a lot of men, you know, in their 40s, I, I can't, uh, you know, I couldn't touch my toes and I have very, very limited mobility. And I just didn't want to end up, you know, not being able to, you know, bend over and stuff. And a lot of my friends have back problems. So I've, um, I've really started to do yoga. And it's, and it's, you know, I used to laugh at yoga and just think, you know, who, who stretches? Yeah. Actually, I've, real, I've realized that, you know, um, you know, stretching is probably more important than actually the actual physical exercise. And a lot of the people I've, I've sort of, you know, engaged and, and, uh, and followed and read, you know, they're, they're spending a huge amount of time on, on, the, uh, on the stretching side and the yoga side. So, I think, you know, for me, yoga is very important. I'm, I'm just at the beginning of that journey, mm. uh, but already getting quite obsessed with it and getting equally as frustrated. <laughs> Don't seem to be making any, uh, any uh, incremental improvements. Um, and then I think um, most people, I think, underestimate the importance of what you eat. Yeah. So, um, and I really like food and cooking. So I've, I've always, you know, tried to, have a pretty balanced diet and and you know eat a lot and I've, I've really made a big effort to eat a lot more vegetables um but again i think when you're working super long hours and highly stressed it it always seems to lead to wanting to not eat very healthy yeah. food yeah so again it's super important and you get out of that routine um and yeah and, and we've, we've we've talked a lot about the juicing and things but um but uh, I've just recently uh, got into the celery juice, and you know, it's uh, it's working, right? It, so. it works, and it, it you, it's the only problem is you become a bit, ex, you know, it's, it becomes like sort of you've got to get celery juice, you know. I know. Around. What if they don't I'm, have celery I'm, juice in Vegas? I know, Whatever. I'm, look, I'm looking around Islington for uh, for celery juice, you know, to buy celery. 
you know, it's run out of uh, Waitrose. So, you know, so anyway. Yeah. But, uh, try, try to find celery juice uh, during G2 in Vegas or an old cappuccino or an actual, uh, you know, healthy meal. That's when I go to conferences, it's so difficult because like, I mean, if you go to a fancy restaurant, you'll probably find some semi-healthy, but when you want to grab lunch on the go, it's so difficult at conferences. So, um, Well, that should be your mission on, your, on the next G2 then to find it. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to complete my mission with my startup before I get into catering. <laughs> but yeah. Well, listen, Richard, um, we're, we're coming close to the time. I think this was brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, again, I think a lot of people will be super interested in your insights. Um, I think your further journey is really interesting as well because, you know, you could have taken a longer break and give yourself some rest. But uh, clearly there's something that really attracted you and gave you enough of a motivation to, to jump straight into another um you know big thing so yep. good luck with everything we're, we're going to be watching and thanks again for for um being my guest today thank you it was lovely to spend time time with you so thanks richard all right Bye. take care see you later